Oh my gosh, what a week. How are you doing? <laughs> pain, yep. to, pain to laughter in response. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to say something shocking to you. Are you ready? I am uh, as ready as I'm going to be. Okay. We re- Nothing shocks me anymore. I should warn you of that. <laughs> we recorded our last episode 11 days ago. That's bonkers. And it was during that episode that we encountered like the first kind of widespread closure of Episcopal yeah. churches. While we were recording that was when we learned um, that the uh, Episcopal Diocese of Washington and the Episcopal Diocese of Virginia were closing. Yeah, and they were, I believe, the first announcement, at least the first one we saw. Yeah, and, and no, it was kind of interesting, um, those announcements from, from the Diocese of Virginia, because they were sort of announced in the Washington Post before they, or they were reported in the Washington Post B- yeah. before they were like publicized on the diocesan website. And that's, yeah. that's kind of, you know, that kind of set the tone for how fast these changes have, have evolved. And continue to continue to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I noticed that you made public on your parish's website, the, the latest adjustment in the diocese of Missouri. I, I did. Uh, did I put it on the website? I guess I did. Yeah. I saw, I, I it saw on it on your, on your parish website, um, this afternoon. Yep. Yeah. And so the news in our diocese, you, you and I are both in the diocese of Missouri. Uh, Correct. Is that the extension, which was technically through April 3rd, April 4th. I can't remember. Yeah. I think I, I originally we, it was, yeah, either one of those, I can't remember if it was through April 4th or, or, hoping to be back april 4th yeah um anyway it's been extended through may 31st of 2020 the um the suspension of in-person we're calling this in-person worship this is this is an interesting phrase that's developed because the idea is yeah people can worship they just can't be together when they do it right and um the and every diocese has a different way of phrasing this and our um our bishops preferred nomenclature, bishop and bishop elect, I should say, um, because all the communications have come from from sort of both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, the way that they've phrased it is a fast from public worship in solidarity with the most vulnerable among us. And I have to admit that uh, I found that statement really compelling. I mean that that made sense. They weren't they weren't saying we are uh, we are um, mandating this or we are calling on you to do this. Uh, where they may have, they may have used that word calling, but it was in connection to that concept of a fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it has additional guidance in terms of um, prayer, public gatherings, baptisms, funerals, weddings, ordinations, all that what sort of it, What stuff. does it say about funerals? Because that seems to be one of the, one of the least controllable parts about this, that, you know, people are going to die They're, and, 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 you know, in a very real sense, that's part of what we're talking about here is people in our parishes may die as a result of this pandemic. Right. It says, I mean, it says Christians bury their dead is the first section under the funerals heading. So mm-hmm. um, it's, it says essentially, well, there's a prohibition for more than 10 people in place. Uh, they should be graveside services with f- immediate family only. And then uh, memorial services, it's recommended that memorial services be scheduled at a later date for those who have been bodily interred. Right. 
And then one of the necessary adjustments that's happened in our diocese, um, and I, I, I know at least one other, I think maybe a couple others, is that the uh, ordination of our bishop-elect, uh, which was to take place Saturday, April 25th, that has been necessarily postponed to a date in June. Yeah. Yeah. June 13th, I believe. And that's just a hard thing. I mean, there's so much excitement around the election and ordination of a new bishop. Um, I know that everybody was, well, there, there is that little phrase, uh, the people consenting and God willing <laughs> yeah. in, in connection with ordinations. And uh, it does seem that God does not will <laughs> that we gather <laughs> for public worship in this instance. Right. I don't, I don't think that necessarily signals God's opposition to the ordination itself. Just, no, uh... no. And, and if there were some concern about, I, I don't know if there were some, some necessity to, to immediately ordain the bishop and be done with it. I know that that could be arranged. You could find three uh, bishops who are willing to travel and take their temperature at the door and just sort of do the ordination as, as, uh, in, as decently and as good order as you can. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm telling tales out of school. Is it, is it possible to ordain a bishop with fewer than 10 people? Because you would need, the bishop-elect, you would need three yeah. ordaining bishops, mm-hmm. uh, one of whom is either the presiding bishop or his his representative. Mm-hmm. Um, you would need... Who reads the testimonials? Or is it is it necessary that the testimonials actually be read by different representative persons? Uh, I... I couldn't answer that. Um, but th- that would be a... That would be an interesting armchair exercise to figure out the minimum number of people you would need present to ordain a bishop, even by webcast. I've heard I've heard eight as a minimum number, which would mean the outgoing bishop, the incoming bishop, the three ordaining bishops. Although the outgoing bishop could be one of those, right? So those those three ordaining bishops, the outgoing and the outgoing bishop and bishop elect, puts us at five, and then you need representatives of the presbyterate the um, diaconate and the laity to mm-hmm. have roles in the service. Mm-hmm. So really you need, essentially you need eight people in order to make it happen. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. But those are kind of the, those are kind of the, uh, I don't know, the less, the less regular aspects of, of worship. Um, when we, when we consider funerals and the ordination of bishops um, and I guess by extension, other clergy too. But just the regular ins and outs of parish worship is what everyone in the the Episcopal and Anglican world is now faced with. Yeah, maybe that's what we should have led with. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we've arrived. <laughs> um, so why don't we just start with us? So what did you do? Um, how did you decide what to do for worship today, Sunday, March twenty second, two thousand twenty? And, um, and how did you communicate that to your parish and, and what were your, what were your reactions to what you did so far? So we used, um, so I'll, I'll back up a bit. We had a, um, a clergy retreat with our bishop and all the clergy of the diocese earlier this week that was scheduled to be an in-person gathering and ended up being a, um, a sort of all day or all morning zoom meeting. Uh, and one of the things that he said at that was uh, encouraging us to disrupt things as little as possible, meaning um, 
encouraging us to to use the right of the anti-communion um the the portion of the service sometimes that used to be called regularly called anti-communion and now is probably more often called the liturgy of the word mm-hmm. um and encouraged us to follow that ordo because it's so much more familiar rather than switching entirely to morning prayer at a time when it's already such a disruption. So that made fairly good sense to me. I know that there's precedent for that in the Anglican church. Uh, and so what I ended up doing or deciding to do is what's, uh, is a, a rite called, um, spiritual communion, which is the anti-communion, the liturgy of the word, the, the sort of, front half uh, of the of the service and then in place of where we would normally receive the eucharist it has some prayers and devotions sort of reminding us that even when we can't sacramentally receive we're still capable of receiving the presence of christ uh through the gift of god's grace right so how how is it that you are familiar with that and able to reach for it you know between last sunday and this well, so I, um, it, it's, it's something that I was aware of because it was, it, spiritual communion has been used as the, um, justification for some online, uh, digital consecration before, um, which is probably where it first came to my attention, uh, in a negative light, but, uh, but most recently, I, I'd seen some people talking about it, and the, the rite that we ended up using was adapted from the Order of Julian of Norwich. The, um, it's an, an Episcopal um, ordin, um, order, mm-hmm. and it was adap- adapted by someone that I that I know from Twitter, um, whose name is Jayan Koshi. I think I'm pronouncing that right, but I've only ever seen it in print, actually, so... <laughs> So uh, if you're listening, Jayanne, and I mispronounced it, I apologize. Can we put that order in the show notes to this episode? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I, uh, I can do that, no problem. So, so I'm guessing when you decided to do this, you um, re-familiarized yourself with how to do Facebook Live. And kind of emailed out what your plan to, to the congregation. Yeah. So, and this is the, this is what's, what's been really interesting to me is that, um, I've, I've had to be reminded and to remind myself over and over again, that this is not just a snow day. That's been sort of my mantra for the past, um, several days in particular, because that's sort of the only paradigm I had for this, right. Is, is Mm -hmm. treating this like a snow day and, We've been snowed out of church before. Like it's not something I love, but we have a um, we have a sidewalk that and a parking. Like we don't control our own parking. We have street parking, and our sidewalks are um, have not always been cleared, even by the companies that we've hired to clear them. So there are times where we've had to cancel service because of snow or ice because I just couldn't, in good conscience, encourage people or even allow people to get out of their cars and try and brave the ice in order to make it into the church. Yeah. And and that is a comparison I've heard different places make this week. You know, we, we have done such and such like when we've had a snow day. Um, yeah. And that's sort of how I started approaching it is we're going to do what we do on a snow day, which is morning prayer via Facebook live. So that's sort of what I, what I started out tooling around with. 
And as it slowly set in that this is so much more than a snow day and this is so much of a disruption to every aspect of our lives, it's not like everything Monday to Saturday is normal and then Sunday we just happen to get three inches, six inches, 12 inches of snow Mm -hmm. and now we have to adjust. It's like everybody's life is utter chaos right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think adhering you know i I think it makes good sense to say adhering as closely as possible to what we normally do or at least the right that we normally observe when everything else is changed uh sort of under our feet is a is is a really good idea yeah i think we had we had very much the same reaction um in the parish where i serve um that we we had a brief conversation about um the benefits of doing Holy Eucharist versus doing morning prayer. And I think we, we pretty quickly reached consensus that uh, Eucharist was what we wanted to do. Um, we, did, we did not have the discussion about uh, anti-communion. And, and granted, I think this is actually immediately prior to the uh, cler- diocesan clergy conference that you, that you referenced. So that, com- <clears throat> that conversation about using it for anti-communion had not, had not been had yet. Uh, with, with, with my clergy. Um, so the plan was and remained to do, uh, the entirety of the Eucharist with the people that we could gather and to share kind of a spiritual communion prayer with, uh, the home viewer to our service that they could, that they could pray personally during that time, uh, during the time that we on screen, um, received communion. And then the other the other element of this, which I, I'm I'm still reflecting on this, and I'm I'm very glad to see that we are by far not the only ones who took this route, um, is we did not have faith in our technology to be able to do this live, so uh-huh. we early on made the decision this needs to be pre-recorded, and so we set for ourselves the time uh, Friday morning to pre-record this, which gave us a day to do anything technical that we needed to do to fix it up. Um, yeah. and to get it online, we use the YouTube premiere function to, to premiere it at 8am, uh, on Sunday morning. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the, one of the reasons for that time is that we regularly have a service at 8am. So at least some of our congregation would, um, associate that time with, with worship at St. Peter's and, yeah. and for the rest, uh, you know, it, it would be online for them to watch, uh, sort of on demand, uh, after that, after that premiere was over. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, one of the things that I, that I've tried to keep as a, as a guiding principle here is, uh, is understanding and reminding myself that no matter what anyone does, everyone's trying to do their best. Like everyone is trying to make the best possible decision that they can. And I've arrived at very different decisions than what a lot of people have arrived at, but that's not because that's not because I'm better or my reasoning is better or even necessarily because it makes better sense for my particular context. Although I think context is of course key, but really, I mean, we are in an imperfect situation. So any answer we give is going to be imperfect. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. It's, it has been a struggle all along the way because even once we've made a decision this week, I haven't really been very happy and sort of carrying it out. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I've never actually been so uncomfortable in worship as I was when we filmed this thing. And I, yeah. <laughs> I hope that doesn't show up on the screen. I just, <laughs> um, 
I was very uneasy. I was hyper alert. Uh, none of it really felt prayerful in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what's been a real relief today is to hear how, how that video was received. Um, yeah, we, we've had some comments publicly on the Facebook page and, and some email privately to the clergy and staff, which we really seem to have hit the right note, um, in, in what we did. And I'm, I'm glad for that, that, you know, at the end of a week like this, that people are able to turn on their computer and at least see something happening in, in their parish and hear, hear the organ, hear the music. That was a part of it for us. We did, uh, we did stick to the 10 person, uh, limit that we have in St. Louis County. Mm-hmm. Um, and so including our videographer, we had 10 people, right. um, but that included four members of the choir, which we spaced more than six feet apart and, yeah. uh, and myself as the organist. So between the choir and the organ, you had sort of half the contingent right there. Um, mm-hmm. so that was a, that was a pretty high, um, proportion of the human resources that we deployed to make this video. And I'm not sure, you know, I think the plan is more or less the same at this moment for next Sunday, but, uh-huh. uh, you know, things continue to evolve and change here. And, um, I'm not sure that the choir will really feel good about that plan going forward. So that's going to be, that's going to be a conversation for this week. Actually, if I can yeah. just, if, let me just say one more word about that because, um, my colleague, Robert McCormick in Philadelphia, who I really admire, uh, has has really publicly weighed he- heavily against that against that model, and um, I really against having the having the choir present. Yes, his his statement really is you know we need to do everything we can to limit the transmission of this virus, and so not even not even taking a risk is really where he where he comes down, and I think. He's right. Anytime you convene people to do anything uh, in this climate, there is an element of risk. Um, and so I think that that really needs to be carefully considered in what in what everyone decides to do. There are places with tremendous music programs that, uh, you know, even if they even if they can pick their best singers um, to do something, you know, it's they're not going to be at full strength. And so I think right. you just have to weigh, you know, what's pastoral here, but what's, what's also practical and what's safe. Uh, what's, what's really the safest option to take during this time. Yeah. And it's, I, you know, it's really interesting because there are, you know, part of what you have to balance is what is, is the community is the context, you know, and, and there are very, you know, I opted instead of doing, uh, instead of doing something polished and something, um, in the nave, I opted to lead a uh, spiritual communion this morning from, from my <laughs> bonus room at my house, you know, <laughs> um, because I think that it's, I, I think it, to me and I think to the community, knowing that we're together in this moment in time, even if we're, even if it's not perfect and even if it doesn't look polished and even if it's not, um, uh, even if it's borderline unprofessional at times, I think is what that community needs. But my community is not every other community. Yeah, know? I don't think and I don't I think, think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I, right. I don't. I mean, so I, I was on that. Um, uh, I was on the first part of that uh, webinar that uh, Virginia Seminary is hosting called 
um, the Triduum under quarantine. I think it's the title of the thing. Yeah, I think so. And so there was a there was a sort of theoretical and theological portion to it that was held on on. Oh, I've lost all track of time. Was it Saturday? I don't know. <laughs> and, uh, Friday. 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 And part two is happening on on Monday. So anyway, I I think uh, it would be fun to to collect some thoughts around that too. But one of the pieces of advice that was made right away was. Uh, if you haven't webcasted before, probably the Triduum is not the time to start webcasting. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it is a lot to take on. And uh, we are definitely a place that had 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 previously had aspirations to webcast, but mm-hmm. we've, we've never actually done it. And so we, we haven't really used any of the infrastructure that we might be able to access because none of us know the first thing about connecting it. Um, right. So we're, we're just sort of doing something that, that actually turned out looking looking really decent. But... It, the only way we were able to do that is because someone happened to have an amazing cell phone that uh, <laughs> can record super quality, uh, super good quality video. And we put a table on a dolly to sort of um, imitate uh, a, a more professional camera rig. So, <laughs> so even though it, it looked halfway decent, you need to know that it was very much a shoestring budget kind of op- operation <laughs> right. on our end and, and, right. and really, really more luck than anything else. So. Yeah, the the video. I mean, there's so many interesting approaches going on. It'd be fun to it'd be fun to sort of catalog some of them. Um, I dropped in on a Zoom meeting that was a, a sort of a morning prayer worship service happening this morning, uh-huh. and I stayed long enough to see something that they were reading in unison, and to see that half of the you know thirty forty people who had gathered there had not turned off their microphones. Yeah. So the the camera image was just jumping all around, and there was a terrible yeah. terrible delay and terrible distortion. Uh, it was very, right. very, very cacophonous moment in that morning prayer service for people. Yeah, I think best best practice in any any Zoom meeting, right? Including a liturgical meeting, and I think I think we're all learning this together at this point is to keep yourself muted yeah. <laughs> until you want to say something to the whole group. Right. So that that includes any kind of liturgical responses that you're making, but that's a challenge with liturgy by Zoom. No, it's true. And I think actually that's what I'm going to move to um, starting this coming week. But we're having several uh, worship worship services, prayer services uh, between now and Sunday to sort of iron out some of those kinks uh, in sort of lower stakes moments than than the um, Sunday morning. Right. But even so, I mean, that that's a choice and there's a risk involved. You right. know, even Facebook Live is lower risk, right? Although I, I don't mean to say that it's a safe choice because nothing is with technology. No, nothing is. Any, any of this stuff can fail. Right. And But with Zoom, you just have much less control because there's so many other people involved. Now, part of the reason I move into that is so that we can actually have lay readers without being physically present, but but it's going to involve sort of talking through that with the lay readers and right. saying, are you comfortable enough with this technology to do right. that? Right. I mean, that's, yeah, you talk about, um, well, yeah, and I think probably on balance, the the involvement of the community, especially the longer this goes on, the involvement of the community on a regular basis despite whatever kind of technical hiccups you have, because, you know, something that will happen at some point is someone will start to read a lesson and then you'll have to say, sorry, you're still on mute. Can you, can you, can you unmute yourself and start again? And that's, you know, that's, that's all part of this. Um, um, what was one of the other, Oh, uh, St. James cathedral in Chicago. Um, Uh 
I think they made a very conscious decision not to do video. So uh-huh. this is a place that I don't think normally records. Uh, I don't think normally publishes recordings of services, but they decided to publish their service uh, through SoundCloud, which is an, uh-huh. which is an audio only platform. Right. At the same time, however, I did notice that the Bishop uh, of Chicago has a sermon for this Sunday, which was very nicely recorded. It's a five minute sermon and it's a video shot of him sitting in a pew talking and it's a, a really, a really um, excellent sermon and very well filmed. So I think yeah. they might be, they might be sort of uh, mixing and matching different technological elements. Right. Whatever. Right. Yeah. But as you say, I mean, there's no, there's no easy answer here and I don't think there's a wrong answer here. Um, right. I, I think you have, I think the desire of most places is to do something and the availability of this technology is such that I think most places are going to find a way to do something. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the, I do think that's the important thing. I have seen places say, you know, all sorts of places are doing live stream services. If, if that's not your bag, don't worry about it because somebody else has got it covered. And I just want to encourage you you know, even if it's even if it's the extremely low tech conference call, like getting your community to to pray together, I think is just a really good idea. However, you can make that work. I don't think it needs to occupy all of your time, especially if you're in a place of crisis. I don't think that you need to you need to kill yourself doing it. But if you're a clergy person and and you're and you're just sort of unsure. Um, about whether or not it's worth it to gather your particular community. I think it absolutely is. I think it absolutely is for that community important for them to be able to pray together. And it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be polished. It doesn't have to be amazing. But if you're able to make them feel like they're still connected to that community, uh, I think that trumps all of the technological issues that you're potentially going to have. Yeah, that's good. Um, so I think, I think pretty immediately, I mean, as soon as it became apparent, I mean, I felt, I felt deeply uncomfortable last Sunday. We had the full choir present. They were all packed in like sardines because they always are. Um, yeah. And the hand sanitizer was flying. And the congregation already sort of knew to stay away. So we had this full choir that were singing for very few people. Um, and I was just... Um, not only was I on edge for that whole service, but I also knew this would be the last time that we would be able to do this because we simply would not feel comfortable no matter what was said um, for this Sunday that just passed. So yeah. um, I, I knew that that was going to happen. So even even during that service, the last time the choir was together and the congregation was together, at least part of the congregation, I was mourning the loss of uh, this this experience. Um, I was inter- yeah. I was interviewed recently for... Um, a podcast about um, people who have callings in the church. And I was speaking as a, a lay person who has a calling as a church musician. And I think the question was asked, what, what is it that you, that you most look forward to in your job? And for me, the answer was really obvious. And at the time, it didn't occur to me that it wouldn't be a regular feature of my professional life. But I said, for me, what I, what I look forward to and what I, what I do all week uh, leads into um, our, corporate, our corporate worship. And so what I look forward to is the worship experience and being together in worship with the clergy and the choir and the congregation and all, all um, doing and singing the liturgy together. Yeah. 
So I think I think everyone is in mourning now at this point that we can't, for the first time, really in our in our lives, we're con- for the first time in more than a generation, right? We're con- yeah. we're confronted with not being able to do this for a period of weeks, and it looks to be actually a period much longer than um, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918, when you saw a number of parishes close for two or three weeks, um, but in, I think some places did not close; they just continued to to worship anyway. I think this is a much longer uh, event and um, I think it's going to be, it's going to be difficult for people, but, uh, but I want to, I want to just sort of hypothesize what is, what is this going to do to our appreciation and theology of worship? Because we're, we're already making this distinction about in-person worship. So how comfortable are we calling, you know, dialing up something that was pre-recorded on video three days ago and sort of praying along with it. How much is that really worship? What does worship mean? Uh, what, what is this, what does this worship mitigated by technology mean? How important, right. how important is it that something be live? Like, what does that even matter? Um, can, can you consecrate, um, a loaf of bread that's sitting at someone's dining room table, uh, farther away in your neighborhood? Um, <laughs> I mean, do, do you want to tackle some of those questions for me? Because I, I don't want to, <laughs> I mean, I, I do think, I mean, we're already seeing some of these play out. You're already seeing. I, what's really fascinating to me is, um, you know, in the in the 20th century, uh, we've seen a, a great deal of ecumenism, a great deal of, you know, thanks to mission and thanks to the liturgical movement, we've seen all of the denominations grow a lot closer together to the point where I think a lot of people think, there really isn't a difference, a significant difference between the mainline denominations anymore. But I'm here to tell you, this is this is exposing, I think, and I don't mean this in a bad way, and I don't I don't mean this is undermining ecumenism, but I do think it is becoming much more apparent that we have more differences than I think we were willing to admit um, between denominations and even within denominations when it comes to our theology of worship. And so you have a lot of people who are comfortable saying it doesn't matter that we can't receive communion, or you have a lot of people saying our theology, you know, my theology of orders or theology of the priesthood is such that this can be consecrated by lay people, um, or that this can be consecrated over the, over the airwaves or, or, uh, through the internet. And, and that's, uh, that's not my theology. I'm not here. I'm, I don't mean to say this to criticize anyone, but that's not my theology. And I don't think historically it's been the, the Episcopal Church or the Anglican Church's theology. And so I think I think what you're realizing is there really are some fundamental differences in the way that we view our corporate life together, both within denominations and between denominations. And I think I think what it's going to do is it's it's going to force people to grapple with that question a little bit more. Do I believe that it's exactly the same to sit on my couch and to worship uh, with with a group of people over a Zoom call, or is there fundamentally something different about gathering together in a space designed for sacred use uh, and and declaring communally? Our, our worship and adoration of the God who is made flesh. I think, I, I think there's going to be some differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you're right that during the interim, there will be some differences like that exposed. But I think 
all of these experiences will, will, will really crystallize for all of us on our first day back, whenever, whenever yeah. that is. And I, I hope and pray that we do have a day back, <laughs> that we're not quarantined forever. Um, yeah. Quarantined is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. Um, right. And it will be, uh, I mean, the, the assumption that I, that I have, and, and I, I really hope to see this play out, is that everyone will, will return to their houses of worship in an incredibly joyous state. And really, for the first time, appreciate that in a way that we never have before. That this, this unexpected fast that we're having to take from worship will, um, well, and from everything. I mean, that so, so much in our, in our society has been, has been canceled or closed that we'll, we'll return to all of this with a new appreciation. And I think that especially includes um, our faith and the corporate aspects of our faith. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that was one of the things that I preached in my sermon uh, this morning is that I, I I hope that we let ourselves feel the lack. I hope that we don't paper over that and say, this is every bit as good as if we were able to gather together, because it's not. It's fundamentally not the same. Yeah, and I think we, and, should, I think we should be honest about that. I mean, I think we want to do whatever job we can, whatever uh, the best job that we can, or whatever we think is appropriate with this technology. But I think we want to be honest about it, that it's not a substitute. It's a stopgap. Yeah, yeah. And that we, we are forced into extreme measures at this, it, by this extreme situation. And, and yet we are yearning deeply for the day when we can, when we can uh, go back. Um, I mean, Scripture has plenty to say about that, too. Yeah, right? The, the Exodus? Yeah, the Exodus, the, the exile. The exile, you know? So one of the uh, one of the things I want to um, one of the things I want to record is uh, the Bach Prelude by the Waters of Babylon from the mm-hmm. Leipzig Chorales. That because that idea of exile um, really did come to me, and I think that that music might set the right tone for this for this period. Yeah, especially and, the, uh, these latter days of Lent. Yeah, my the Lenten Bible study we've been doing at my church has been on the minor prophets, you know. So we, that's that's sort of in the forefront of my mind too. Like, Scripture has embedded in it that sense of yearning to go to the house of the Lord, and I think that I think that we are starting to understand some of those passages of Scripture in a way that we just never did before. Yeah. Um, so I think I think. In some ways, this can, this time can be a gift, and I don't mean that. Again, I don't mean that to, to sort of paper over the problems with with what we're going through, or or the catastrophe that is uh, that is potentially looming for for uh, those at, at high risk. But um, 
but the the isolation itself is is potentially something that we can learn from and that our spirituality can deepen as a result yeah i mean uh, we're only a few days into this and i already know this is this is a time that i will never forget yeah 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 you're talking about scriptural texts that resonate how about the collect for today i know Um, i know give give us this bread always yeah uh I mean, how 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 many times, how many years have we prayed that and not thought twice about our access to the Eucharist being just sort of a given? I know that's what that's the other thing. The two things I talked about in my sermon, scripture or or from the service itself. Uh, actually, there were there was another one. I talked about the gospel too, but uh, I talked about the collect and how sort of taken by surprise I I was um, praying that, and then. Uh, Psalm 23 showing up in Lent 4. Like, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm new enough as a priest that uh, I just keep forgetting that Psalm 23 is one of the psalms in Lent for one of our lectionary years. And yeah. I so strongly associate it with Easter 4, um, mm. for Sunday of Easter. Thanks for joining us for this episode of All Things Right and Musical as we unpack our new realities uh, around the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, there's more information on our website, writeandmusical.org. That's R-I-T-E and musical.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.